Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the excited welcome program, Dr. Mark Hayden. Dr. Mark, what's going on? How are you? Uh, feeling great. Having a great day. It's a beautiful day. Um, it's, uh, I guess you'd call this spring. First day of summer hadn't started. Uh, we're not in lockdowns presently in the United States. And uh, so all that's good. Yeah. So, let's, um, yeah, so, I mean, we've seen a lot of different things, but we're talking the vaccine now. The sure. newest, latest news on the vaccine. That's what we really want to stick to on this podcast. Less sure. about everything else involving COVID, but vaccine. Latest news yeah. on the vaccine, meaning like like the effectiveness, what we've been hearing uh, so far lately. You have to look, the, the major vaccines were and still are conventional vaccines. They're intramuscular. So 99% or more of all the current vaccines are intramuscular. They're shots. So when you ask somebody around the world, did you get your vaccine? You really are asking them, did you get a vaccine shot? When you get a shot, you have systemic response. You don't necessarily have a surface mucosal response that defends the alveolus. Now, COVID grows on your alveolus and you can transmit it even when you're asymptomatic, have no symptoms. What makes that disease difficult to stop the transmission is that it spreads from your alveolus when you're speaking, talking, making noise. A virus, when you're covered with little measles red bumps and you're in the active phase and coughing your brains out, that you will make an aerosol and it can hang in the air very much like COVID But when you see somebody with measles, you know they're very, very sick. And if you have any intelligence, you avoid them at all costs. The problem with measles was you could walk through the same room two or three hours later and you could breathe it out of the air. And so it was impossible to stop the transmission of measles without having a vaccine that worked 90% effectiveness. There would be new mutants spreading across the border. You can't stop those mutants coming from the United, into the United States. Wow. And what we also know is during the last week, we have members of the Yankees team that were fully vaccinated, eight of them, and are, tra- and are positive for the vi- virus. That means they are spreading likely a new mutant that has come into the New York area. So, so, so you're telling me this vaccine is 100% effective only for one form of the virus. That's, and that's at, the vaccine, intramuscular vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna are only effective for the specific serotype that they were designed for and only at, at reducing the death, not at stopping transmission. That's right. Their effectiveness at stopping transmission only reduces, does not eliminate transmission. That means that here's, here's, and of course, all this sounds like, well, what's going on here? Ordinary vaccines don't work that way. That's right, because that's coronavirus is not an ordinary disease. Consider the, the transmission phase as a phase when it grows on the surface like a fungus of your alveolus. So it hasn't even entered into your body and caused a systemic response, no fever, no chills. And so if you looked at those 18 members of the Yankees that are currently positive, they're not in ICU. I, I don't know them personally. Right, but right. so, so you're, sure. you're telling me basically it's a good, it's a, the, the vaccine is a good form of a prophylactic, which we talked about. It, it reduces, it reduces death rate 
for those people who are already vaccinated, but they are still largely transmissible. That's right. Somebody, Neil, somebody, your mom, my mom, your friends, your family, your enemies have a right to look at you and say, I don't want you to transmit a virus to me. That's reasonable. I mean, I, I don't want somebody to transmit a virus to me either. Okay. But here's the reality. The coronavirus is going to be transmitted through our communities for the year after year after year and mutant after mutant after mutant, regardless of all, regardless of these vaccines. Now, the question is, is there a way to stop transmission? And there is. Inoculation through exposing your body to the live virus, to your intestinal How many times? So, so, so that's, the, again, you, again, your vaccine. That again, yes. it's, uh, that if you go to antiviruserra.com right now, you'll see it. And we're going to be making a big push. But we're waiting for the wave to come to the U.S. so that we were right about everything. Then we could go back and say, play the tape, right? Play right. the tape. And then we go to CNN, we go to all these places, say, play the tape, because when it comes out, we were we were talking about this months ago. If, you know, listeners that tune into the COVID-19 vaccine show on podcasting or again from the television to the YouTube, everything. So the point I'm going to make is this. If we went your route, how many times do we have to inoculate ourselves a year to keep ourselves from not getting the virus by swallowing the virus live? If you swallow live virus and it reaches your intestine, you have colonization. Every new form, which is radically different, if you want to stop transmission on that serotype, you are likely to have to swallow that new serotype as a capsule. Now, here's how you know whether there is a test that you can design to see if the current variant is reacting to the old variant. And that is, if you expose people to live virus and they suddenly have an increase in recolonization, then their intestinal tract was not able to manage that because the surface, because the surface proteins and antigenic differences were so great uh, that it had to de design a new antibody type. Your body is actually, the viruses in your community are mutating all the time. Exactly. Your intestinal tract is managing it's not just managing one or two viruses. It'll manage hundreds of maybe thousands of different bacteria and viruses this year. And you've been, it's been doing it every right, right. year of your life. Exactly. So, so I mean, so, the, so, the how many, so, way, so how many times are you exposing yourself to live virus a year? You know, I have, after I did inoculation, I have exposed myself to live virus at least five or six times. But meaning, Seven times. I, but, but, but meaning how many times do you have to take it? You think self-inoculate yourself. I've done inoculation at least five, six, seven times. So is Absolutely. that a problem? Is that going to be? So let's just say if your vaccine goes through and it's a competitor to the intramuscular vaccines, at least in certain parts of the world, they got to bring you on clubhouse. You got to jump on clubhouse. We got to get some angel investors involved in other countries and get this rolling. And we have connects all over the world. The point I'm making is, if you do this, how many times do you think you have to swallow live virus a year not to get COVID? When you say get COVID, for me not to be symptomatic, I only have to do that probably once a year. Okay, once a year. Yeah. And yeah. so, okay. Now, now here's, here's the difference. It is well known that when you have a natural infection, you are not transmissible after 10 days. Right. Even when you take two shot regimen, you're still transmissible at least 50%. Okay, so, so let's break down this because the, 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 the things coming out is, well, if you have the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask anymore. So we're talking vaccine. We're talking mask. We're not talking politically at all. It's, the bottom line is everyone wants a fix to get back to normal, back to big <laughs> concerts, back to big events, because they were willing to suffer and have this pandemic just because they're going back to the history of the Spanish flu. They want it to go the same route as the history of the Spanish flu. Okay. We had some down parts. Now we're going to have great times. And the people who did not 
stop this virus from coming in. You know, we can talk politically, but strategically, uh, certain administrations did a better job of controlling what viruses were coming in and out of the country, or at least were more cognizant of the fact. But either way, it was a biological weapon, whatever it was, we're not going to talk about that. But the point I'm making with this with the uh, this vaccine is it's out there that it, you don't need to wear a mask anymore. This is very, very effective. And they're pushing this out everywhere to the to the American people. Your take Here. is what is effective. So if I go ahead and, and my wife's stressed about this, I want to get my vaccine so I could go out and live a normal life again. What do you say to those people that say, I want to do that? Your concern is what? Here, here's my concern. If you want to stop, that if you want to prove that you're not transmissible, you cannot prove you're not transmissible with a vaccine that's intramuscular. So just because you have a vaccine card doesn't mean you're not transmissible. There is a way to prove that, and that is to have surface IgA measured for that particular serotype. Let's say I have, I do an antibody test, for instance. Let's say I go over to India, and I have, I take an India, the Indian variant of the coronavirus, and I swallow it. If I can get an IgA spike on the surface of my mucosa to defend my lungs. That spike should happen in one, two, three, four, five days, certainly before the ninth day. If that happens before, you should, if that happens before somebody was vaccinated and had an antibody spike, then that would mean that somebody who was inoculated with live virus would have a faster response than somebody who was being vaccinated. Those tests aren't being done. There's not a single demonstration competition between producing IgA in two different groups, one group being vaccinated and one group being inoculated. These tests aren't being done. You know who regulates IgA tests for saliva? It's the CDC. Okay. And guess what? Why is the CDC not allowing all these tests to come in cheap, low cost, should be about a dollar, two dollars a piece. And we check out and say, hey, guess what? I just did a test today. Here's my test. I can't spread it. I have the antibody on my lung. Even if I got it into my lungs, I couldn't go back in and spread it. Ever. That's ever. Because you would have an IgA test to prove that you're re resistant so to that form. That's not available. This Why? Because the CDC hasn't made it available. Where's it available? It's available in Europe. Oh, guess what? Aren't you surprised by that? That Europe, not the CDC, would have an IgA test. Why does Europe have it? Because they're not as much of a puppet of big pharma. The only choices you're going to get in the United States are the choices that are controlled by Fauci and his friends. That's the story. Okay. Big right. Pharma. Okay. So based on that, the vaccine, just as a public service announcement, the vaccine is effective so that you do not have your symptoms decrease. But do you see the vaccine being effective three, four times through? So let's say it's going to be effective for six months, right? In six months, you have to go get another vaccine. Even if you've got the two shots, you're going to have, they're going to have to get a booster. Will that yes. In fact, here's what you're looking at, Neil. It is almost certain that before the end of this year, they're going to be asking the American public to get a new repeat vaccine. They're a new one for a new for a new IGA subset. That means, hey, the old Pfizer didn't work. The old Moderna. You're either going to have to have a booster, a new shaped spike protein you're going to have to become sensitized so, to. so you're telling me the india variant does not the the vaccine currently in the united states does not work for the new indian variant pretty much that's it that's right and that's well, why is that not going out because that's what they're saying is the indian failed to get vaccinated and only one percent of the country got vaccinated that's why this is where the pandemic's the word it's going on in india well if you look at seychelles 
one about a third of the people had both vaccine shots, and yet they still transmitted, and they were still symptomatic. Why, why, so why do they say this? So you were considering the third wave being the UK variant. Now we're looking at the Indian variant is the one we're very concerned about. Yes. When do you and, expect and you know, that to, the, to arrive in America? Yes. So before the end of the year, you're going to see another variant come through here, and then they will be asking everybody who got the Pfizer and Moderna already, hey, sign on for your next round of shots. And, and you know, I'll tell you right now what I'm concerned with, Neil, is uh, – I want things to be stable economically. I want us to have a better economy. Right, but you don't think it's going to happen? No, no. Not, it's not going to happen until you remove the people who mismanage this problem from the get-go. That, that's, that's, yes. So, so the, the, okay. So based on that, just the, to kind of summarize the rest of this COVID-19 vaccine, because we're really trying to stand that. If you want to go back to some real interesting stuff, you go ahead and check uh, freedom from addiction uh, dot lipson.com uh, or just check out freedom. From I, I would love, I want you to put up last the, the show. We did on Friday. Do that, or don't trust me. That's going to go on your website as well. Yes. Uh, and that's going to go up on the website as well. Um, because we talked about a lot of important. Oh, no, no, no. But this is for the vaccine show, which you have a yes. really good ranking as the yes. number one vaccine show COVID-19 vaccine show is the number one vaccine show that goes up every week available on Spotify, iTunes, all those places, write a review. Tell me what you think. Check out Dr. Mark Hagan on different social media, but go ahead and do your closeout, Dr. Mark. You know, here's my closeout today. Deal. Ask for honesty and candor. The truth will set you free. We need candor from the people who are in charge of health programs. Your physicians in your community are an untapped source of wisdom and understanding. Set those people free. If you believe in free enterprise, if you believe in ingenuity and innovation, that can come from the physicians in your community. Get the physicians in your community to study radvac.org, inoculation. Don't limit your possibilities to only the possibilities that make profits for big pharma. And do, don't spread the virus. The fastest way not to spread the virus is to do inoculation. I don't own, owe my protection, my immunity to Pfizer and Moderna or to any for-profit big pharma. My wife does it. My son does it. We think, we use our mind that God gave us. We're not dummies that have to follow everything that the CDC tells us. And ultimately, the reason I'm alive today and the reason that you're alive is because we have a purpose in our life. And part of our purpose is to live healthy lives, help other people live healthy lives. And let's get honesty and truth out there. Let's not get, let's have dialogue and debate. The way that we function as humans is we discuss things and we argue things. And, and those, that's what really helps us move move get a consensus you can't have a consensus unless you argue and debate first there's never any argument and debate you were told to they sent all the physicians home told them to shut up and go home that's not progress exactly okay look and i appreciate the chance to speak to y'all today and i'm telling you the next wave is going to be big world health organization says there'll be more casualties in the next wave than the last one and it's coming and it won't be very long. That's right. All right. And, and Pfizer Moderna did not fix it. Big Pharma didn't fix it. We told right. you. You heard it first you. on the COVID-19 vaccine show. So go ahead and say your final closeout. Go. You know, count your days. My days are numbered. I have to count my days and make my days count. And uh, I hope you do too. Make, make this day matter. You have a great day, Neil, and, and right, you, that, you stay right, in touch. All right, that was the COVID-19 vaccine week. show. You guys take care.
celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download celebrity slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Justice, Below the Service, and the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? Doing good this morning, Neil. How are you? And uh, Doing great. Awesome guest uh, this morning. Everybody excited to always about our guests. Doing, we doing great. Good morning, guys. Okay. So um, the book that we're going to discuss this morning is called Early Winter. Learning to Live, Love, and Laugh Again After a Painful Loss. My guest uh, is Howard Bronson. Howard's been on the program maybe six times talking about his other books. And I would uh, suggest uh, that you go to my website, podcast website, and scroll backwards and listen to all of his programs. Uh, Early Winter is about a memoir of Howard and his relationship to his father. And his father had an untimely death at around age 60. Um, how are you doing, uh, Howard? I'm doing great. And it's always a joy to talk with you. And if I can quickly say, that one of the things I really enjoy about not only the interviews, but our friendship is you always have more questions than answers. I, uh, I had uh, Larry King on my program and at the time he had about 35,000 interviews and I had a 150 and I said, Larry, <laughs> you didn't graduate from high school, but you're the smartest person that I know. Why is that? And he said, because I ask more questions than anyone you know, and I listen to the answers. I thought that was really well. Then you, great. You're in good company. Okay, so um, what I what I want to do is, I think I'll start with another another interview that I read this morning around three o'clock in the morning. And it has to do with Gore, no, uh, Norma and Jean Crumley. Um, they were married for around 65 years and then she died. Now, during that interview, he said, underneath the humor, there's the evident sadness that comes when your best friend, your companion for nearly six decades is gone. Crumley's personality is large enough to fill an arena, yet in the quiet moments of time together, his loss is palpable. That first wedding anniversary without her, a week after she passed away, he continued their tradition of going to the Olive Garden. Worried about him, his son and daughter-in-law joined and, and asked him uh, what he thought about taking a younger lady out to dinner. When uh, his son bristled to this uh, suggestion, he pulled an old photograph of Norma from his chest pocket. There's the old saying, time heals all wounds. It doesn't actually heal anything, I think, but it allows you to get through it. Today, uh, Crumley has a hard time describing the loss. In a letter he wrote uh, after our first meeting, I had no idea how to comfort someone who had lost a spouse until Norma's going home to be with her Lord Jesus. The depth of the hurt and the grief is of such a magnitude that unless you've been through it yourself, you absolutely have no idea what it's like. I don't know that I can describe it even now, except to say that half of me is missing, for she was such an important part 
of my life for all those previous years. Would you like to make a comment about what Crumley had to say? Absolutely. I think that in-laws of somebody that we deeply love, there are things we can do to honor that loved one. And my book, Early Winter, is really about honoring my father. And what I think, the way I think we best do that is by remembering the love and being grateful for the love. I mean, who am I? We don't get to pick our parents. And I had a wonderful mother, brilliant mother, and a wonderful, strong father. And I'm so grateful because it gave me a foundation. And when so often in my practice, I encounter clients who really didn't have viable parenting. Some did really well, reaction formation, but many who didn't have that foundation uh, you know, never seem to be able to make up for that gap. So what I hear and what I see is, you know, our sadness is a way of honoring those that allowed us to be the people that we became. Okay, we're going to go through your book and uh, I'm going to read from your book and then if you would give me a comment. In the introduction, you said, nothing can change what has happened and my father never would have wanted us to dwell on the cold callousness surrounding his death. He would want us to focus on his life and what he taught us. So enjoy early winter and get to know my father and how special he was to our and to this world. Yes. It, it's interesting because I was looking back on the book last night. It's had 11 printings. Um, there are still glitches in the book as, we, as we've seen and, you know, typographical issues as we've seen. But for some reason, the book has worked. The book has kind of inspired people uh, to have somewhat of a catharsis about their own relationships. You know, there's an expression God created man because he loves stories. And this may well fall into that genre of stories of living and life that inspire us to reflect on our own experiences of love and of loss. Um, in your introduction, do you have a copy of the book with you or not? Yes, sir. Uh, the page isn't titled, but it's under the uh, subtitle Cherish Grief. I think it's a, a poem that either you or your, your mother wrote, probably your mother. And you, that was my mother. And you put poems into the prose, which works really well. I do that in some of my books, uh, including uh, Freedom from Addiction 3. Uh, so there's a poem here. Can you get to it and read it or... Well, you want me to do it. You're talking about I am your parent? No, I'm talking about my love, my lover, my other self, my best friend has died. It's, um, he is gone from me. I am alone. No matter that I am surrounded by friends and relatives and children and everyone, I am so alone. The longing for him and the missing of him is an acute physical ache. The loneliness and quiet is anguish. Time and I are engaged in a battle. Time wants to assuage my pain, but I will not cooperate. I will keep my pain as a pearl. I will spin a shell around my anguish and hide it deep within my heart so no one else may see it. Now I can come back into life and be who I am amongst the living. And I will be a person who will converse, play bridge, take classes, tell stories, and sometimes smile. I may even love someone sometime, somewhere, but I will always treasure this dark jewel and keep my sorrow hidden evermore. 
Okay, so your mother wrote this poem before she died, and it's about how she felt when your father, uh, Gordon, uh, died. Now, before we go on, do you want to make any comment about the poem, the meaning, uh, the impact, anything? When my father was taken from us, when we all felt like we were drowning and we found ourselves calling each other all the time to kind of reach a hand out and keep one another from falling all the way down or falling under the water. Uh, and I felt so badly for my mom and her anguish because they were, they had such an amazing relationship for almost 40 years. Um, but she felt bad for us and she was concerned for us. So, you know, in the darkest times, there's also light because often in a family, you reach out to one another in ways that you never did before. The next thing I want to talk about is your statement. Though your uh, struggle is personal only to you, there are millions of people struggling with issues they may and must face about a lost loved one. And the issues must be faced. The, <clears throat> when we walk around in life, we don't know what other people have gone through or are going through. But at any point in time, and you and I have seen this very intimately over the past 14 months, I've literally counseled hundreds of grieving families who've lost loved ones, uh, fathers, sometimes children, uh, you know, uh, spouses. And they, you can't see it when you're out in the world. And, you know, sometimes someone might have their head down or, or not, you know, be as conversant as usual. So looking someone in the eye uh, you know, smiling, which is very hard with, you know, with our masks on. And, you know, that's a whole other issue and debate. Um, but smiling with your eyes, giving people a little bit of encouragement where you can makes all the difference. Let me tell you something real quick, because I know we have many questions to get through. I had a client last year who was suicidal um, and who, you know, had gone to this bridge where he lives, where many people had jumped before and was contemplating suicide, held himself back at the last minute, but really gave up on life. And this is not to toot my own horn, but what I decided to do over and above the obligatory counseling, you know, once a week or sometimes once every two weeks, was to send him little one-line snippets encouraging him, you know, in the morning, sometimes in the middle of the night, because, you know, as you know, in severe anxiety, people, some of these people don't sleep. And I did that day after day for two months. And then, you know, didn't hear from him. You can't follow up on everybody. You know, you cannot solicit to get them to come back in. About four or five days ago, I learned that he is back in life. He has a new relationship, uh, he has a job, he's sleeping, he's living his life. So sometimes my point is when we do little things for other people, a smile, a tiny encouragement, you can be helping to save their lives. Absolutely. Um, turn to page four for me. Uh read this poem uh, that's on page four and make a comment. Oh, I have to say that I hadn't been able to read these or from my book, Doggone. Uh, they were hard. You know, I had to learn how to put on my professional uh, stage uh, demeanor. I'm bleeding from my father's heart, a candle crying, dark red droplets, falling from a cruel fire. My father's heart, 
Waxen tears leap pain, droplets glisten years. No one hears, no one speaks. Tears wax abundant, hardened, lifeless. I bleed coldly. Emotionally, what, what were you feeling when you wrote that poem? Um, such anguish. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the moment when I'm in my deepest anguish, and I know, you know, the moment of his passing, these were some of my thoughts. And I said, I need to write them down because I need to remember. You and I, when are chroniclers, we are recorders and we write down and capture moments. Uh, we both have a background in journalism. And I, I could barely walk when my mother called me, uh, you know, shortly after my father died and she got on the phone and said, Howard, daddy's dead. And <clears throat> it struck something in me, I could barely walk. And I remember I felt like my heart was bleeding. That's where that came from. Yes. Okay, now, I like to give great content in my podcast. And here's what the most important thing that he, meaning Gordon, my father, taught me was about time. How long we live isn't nearly as important as how we live. Can you comment on your father's uh, uh, statement? My father lives forever um, <clears throat> from his love and his wisdom. And there are people as we have seen who live for decades and just kind of cruise through life and seek whatever pleasure they can and don't aim to give. My father always tried to do his best. At 17, he got his parents to sign a waiver to allow him early entry into the Marines. He left <clears throat> Yale University uh, so that he could serve his country. When he came home, he was then called back after starting a young family, he was called back and served also as a tank officer in Korea. Then when he came back, he had such a sense of gratitude, having seen so many of his comrades die and fall and never come home to their families and to their wives. And with that gratitude, he made every moment count. He loved to laugh. And what I understood was he was laughing for all of the people too, who couldn't laugh, who never came back. He loved, he so enjoyed conversation and people and he had this deep authoritative voice that kind of really deep bellow uh you know that we really listened to him he never raised an arm to us he never had to he was a strong man who lived his life so fully that even at 60 years he had done so much his life was so rich that he lives on so that's so powerful howard because i lost my father about a year and a half ago and it's still it's still tough for me to think about it and just where when i start thinking of him in different ways so such such a powerful thing that we are sharing our, our love for others on this program today often and i think i've noted in the book that that kind of pain, anguish, and sorrow also serves to keep the love alive. Um, as human beings, uh, we are warriors. Uh, we suffer from anxiety, worry, depression, etc. So you wrote, humans are warriors. We worry about everything, sex, death, money, self-image, 
oh, we know it's bad to worry. And of course we worry about that. Even the most mellow people you've ever known who don't seem to have a care in their heads, they worry that they have no worries. Uh, what do you think? I think that my point and, you know, remember every time we write or we have an insight and then we evolve and we, you know, understand more of what we were trying to say, which is that anxiety and worry are paralyzing. And one of my issues in my practice is I'm constantly arguing for optimism. I'm arguing for people to see the best in themselves, even if their friends, loved ones, even if their spouses say, no, you can't do it. It's not going to work. You've got to see the best in yourself and not take in and be contaminated by other people's worry or negativity. You have to stand up instead for hope and for action and motion, hope and optimism translate into effective action. Worry is paralysis and people waste their time. My dear wife, when she starts to worry or have anxiety of, oh, you know, I don't know what that bump is on my arm and blah, blah, blah. I say, well, look, you know, we're going to get it looked at. We're going to take care of it. But the thing that's going to kill you is not the little bump on your arm, but worrying about it. You know, the body hates to worry. There are diseases and autoimmune diseases that I think are exacerbated by us <clears throat> worrying and not liking ourselves and filling ourselves with anxiety. <clears throat> no, I agree with you completely. Um, the next point um, I uh, read that you said, we are out to eradicate death and its companion, demon suffering. We have stopped thinking of life in terms of quality and only in terms of time. As physicians and courts around the world seem to battle for who kept the last human cell alive for the longest time. Billions of dollars are made by the simple premise that society not only wants to stay young forever, but to live forever as well. We flock to seminar schools and other dream places that promise systems for reducing suffering. Now, I, I think that suffering is an addiction. I define an addiction as any behavior that you have that causes you pain or someone you love pain and you can't stop it. Using that uh, definition, I believe that suffering is an addiction and one that's fairly common. And I would like for you to tell me what you think. Well, you, you bring up, you know, some of my favorite points. I completely agree with what you said, that we can become addicted to feeling badly for ourselves. Because, you know, a lot of times people have all kinds of reasons for suffering. Oh, you know, I've lost this one. I'm not feeling well, or, you know, this isn't working out. And suffering, you know, falls into that realm of that paralysis. But you also brought up a very interesting point, uh, you know, in, in reading about how we're so obsessed with extending life, but not really extending living. And I think back on Nelson Mandela, who is one of my heroes. Uh, and I love having people that I can look up to, like Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and Churchill, and the list goes on. I get inspired when I read them, and I bring them back to life. And with Nelson Mandela in his last few years, he had to be fed by a, a stomach tube. Um, he was barely uh, uh, lucid or conscious, and, and Lord knows if he was even in his last, you know, years. Um, and it was like they were doing everything to keep him, keep his heart beating, but he may have arguably not been alive anymore. And so we have, you know, this debate where we turn the elderly sometimes into human laboratories. 
when you know we need to sometimes say like albert einstein uh, had heart ailments in his i think he, he lived to 74 75 years and he had a heart ailment in the 50s uh, and that was treatable and he said i'm not going to get the treatment and i'm not going to extend my life i've made my contribution I've done what God has asked me to do, and it's my time. So I think the point is we should all be living our lives. Yes, there's a time for mourning. Uh, you know, Neil, as you say, and my father, you know, who, who died from an untimely uh, surgical mistake 37 or 38 years ago, he's still very much alive in my heart but I never use it to stop living. I never dwell on it. I'm grateful. It almost becomes like a prayer. Thank you, God, for giving me this amazing father and this amazing advantage in living and move on and move ahead and do the best you can from the background and the gifts you were given from those who came before you. That's what they would wish. If they, if they were still alive or if they could speak to you from beyond, what do you think they'd say? What do you think they'd say? You think they'd say, mourn me forever, paralyze yourself, feel bad? Or would they say, look, my time is done, like Einstein said when he was living. My time is done. Now the ball torch has been passed on to you. It's time for you to do your best and stop feeling sorry for yourself. Howard, let me uh, put it in terms of what your father said. He said, enough about me. My time is over. The greatest thing that you can do for me now is to put my death behind you and move forward with full determination. Anything else will be a waste of your time and of my effort in raising you to be a solid human being. We actually insult. We get to a point of mourning, you know, where mourning is important to honor our loved ones. But we actually get to a point, you know, in most religions, you have a memorial. You don't have it all the time. You have it once a year. But we get to a point where we're actually insulting those who came before us if we're continually mourning and not living our lives. You said this writing, meaning my book, had a purpose again, to help people unearth the pain and not just bury it away somewhere as a confused mental blur. We have to look at this painful time over a long stretch and accept and deal with it as we grow and not just hide it away. Boy, <laughs> good for me for writing that. <laughs> there is a catharsis that this particular book, Early Winter, has inspired over the years. And what I am saying is too many people and too many people, too many people, too many families bury their pain, bury their feelings and keep little secrets about their pain, their anguish or issues in their family. And when secrets are the toxins of any family, what I'm saying is feel the pain don't drink, you know, you, this, I'm getting into your realm about dealing with addiction and I defer to your wisdom here, but I'm saying, don't drink, don't do drugs. Don't, don't overeat. Don't, you know, stuff your emotions. Don't get into some addictive behavior to hide your pain and feelings. Feel your pain, feel your anguish, acknowledge that it's there. Don't be afraid. It's not going to destroy you it's going to be real and it's going to ultimately it's purging it's like crying tears of of sadness which we know are cleansing and when you do that you'll be able to 
dissolve this anguish over time. And time, you know, grief is, grief allows us the buffer to get over anguish and loss. It allows us those months after loss. But after a reasonable period of time, for some people, it's several months. For some people, it's a year. Uh, but if it goes on for years, that's not fair to the loved one you lost. Well, there you have it. Um, Howard, in my opinion, is the most critically thinking philosopher of the 21st century. And I want uh, for you to listen to all of his other programs about other books that he's written. And you can do that by going to www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. You spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. And then scroll down. And every time that you see a program by Howard Bronson, listen to it. Howard, do you want to give them um, an um, idea of how the, they can get your books? You can go to Waldorf, W-A-L-D-O-R-F, publishing.com or Amazon. The name of the book is Early Winter. It's a bereavement classic. Um, you can also find a little snippet of an interview uh, of an actual video of me talking about the book on our home website of free enterprise solutions. That's freeenterprisesolutions.com. And let me close by saying to people out there listening, grieving, going through sadness, especially what we've gone through in this past year, what's done is done and it's sad and it's hard and it's unfair, but the best thing you can do to tribute those loved ones who are no longer with us is to live your life fully. And to the audience that's listening today, it's a pleasure to have you listening today to my show. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. And as you know, my name is Reverend Wynn Henderson as an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor. I have a dual perspective to bring all problems in your life. This podcast is the longest running signal hosted spiritually based radio internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 20 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, your purpose in life and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. My mission or purpose is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior. This is a spiritual cure and the treatment program is profiled in my book, Freedom from Addiction 3. If you meet three simple criteria, you will get well. I have um, three, you can start your journey. The first I gave you was my podcast, freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. The second is a link to my website where you can find out more about my work with addiction. It's www.revwinhendersonmd.com. And the final resource is my Twitter account. You search uh, at uh, hugo.com for at Hugo the Artist. There you will find inspirational and educational daily pearls of wisdom that will help you with your life. Howard, thank you for being on the show and I can't wait for you to come back and do another program. An honor to be here, Reverend. Neil, thank you for- Yeah, thank you, thank you. When it was great information, thank you again, Howard. Very uh, welcome. Perfect, all right. Uh, that was Freedom Prediction, Truth, Justice, Below the Service of the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program. Andrew Shack and Andrew, what's going on? What's our topic? Let me let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I just talked about with Neil a very perceptive comment he made that we're going to talk about kingship a few minutes today. And uh, Neil made a very 
pertinent point that in the Hebrew Bible, and of course, let me put it this way, the Hebrew Bible, which I have read parts of it anyway, in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Bible does in the Psalms and in other sections talk about our responsibility to the poor and widows and those in trouble. So I don't think the Jewish perspective was against that, against loving your neighbor, but it does seem, and we're gonna talk about kingship, that um, Solomon and David seem, it seems to recommend prosperity, okay? Uh, the uh, D David and his kingdom uh, was established and uh, it's wealthy and he, he's seen as uh, connected with, and the kings of Israel are seen as connected with riches, glory, and power. But there's other elements in the Hebrew Bible. And bear in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that talk extensively about love for your neighbor and concern for the poverty and concern for poverty. There's a great deal of discussion, particularly in Psalms about that topic and in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So don't let me mislead you, but there is an element in Jewish teaching that if you get rich, you're doing okay. Uh, but Jesus seems to have altered that. And I'll tell you how he altered it. Let's look at Jesus' life, Neil. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not, I have great respect for Jewish people and Jewish culture. I think in many respects, they are the forerunners of Christian belief. They are connected with Christianity and they are extremely concerned with concern for poverty and for people who are in trouble and for widows. They talk about it a lot in the Psalms. There's a great deal of talk about that. But unfortunately, there is an element in the Hebrew Bible, particularly with respect to the kings, such as David and Solomon, that they had, were, had riches. And as you said, uh, Neil, uh, there is an element in the Hebrew Bible and Jewish culture at that time, at that time, which um, recommended and said it was great if you had prosperity. Uh, that was the culture at the time, uh, but I think there was a, Jesus made a modification of that issue. Let's take a look at Jesus' life. He didn't have much money, did he? Uh, he didn't seem to. He chose people as his disciples, fishermen, and an outcast tax collector to be his followers. He, 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 he blessed the poor, meaning that you will be blessed in the next life. He, I'm not saying that Jesus wants people poor. He does not want people poor, Neil. He wants it. And this is where I, I, I differ with the right-wing Christians, for want of a better word. I think that uh, Jesus wants an economic division of wealth. I think he wants people to be good, have a good, have a good life. I don't think he wants people poor. I don't think he blesses poor, but he realizes that the poor suffer in this life and they'll be blessed in the next. But also there are statements in the in his life in the gospels that who is this man? They couldn't understand why he could eat with publicans and sinners. They couldn't understand it. They said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Namely, can anything good come out of the sick down? He comes in a donkey to Jerusalem. He's wearing a robe. He has no money. So there is an element in Christian teaching about poverty and riches being a barrier. There is a, a, there is a story in the Gospels, and I, I think you should look at it, ladies and gentlemen, where a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, how can I have an eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, give up your money, give up your property, and he can't do it. So Jesus is really saying to a certain extent that money is a barrier to knowing God and to having a being a good person, it can be a barrier like any other things are a barrier. So yes, kingship in Israel has connected with prosperity. There was a connection with money at that time. It would appear that Jesus takes a different position. That's all I have to say about this. Wow. Okay. So kingship. So kingship. kingship what, so, is, so, yes, so, so the there was. There is an element in the Hebrew Bible that that money, as you pointed out correctly, Neil, that money and prosperity were coming from God. Therefore, if you were rich, you were, you were blessed by God. Jesus takes a different position. He takes a different stance. He, he looks at things differently. Whether he's right or wrong, I don't know. But for, I've just given you some examples of what I mean. He chose, he chose not wealthy people, not well-educated people, not the top people in the hierarchy. He chose poor people, to be his followers and his followers at that time, 
the people that were attracted to him were the poor and 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 people lacking in wealth. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Best place we can connect to you. Where can we go? Okay. Take a look at my books that are coming out, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Shackatshow.com for more information, Andrew. Take care. We'll talk to you next week. You're listening right, to the Daily Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.